Well, turn with me, if you would, in the book, to the book of 1 John. As we continue our series, we're now in chapter 5 of 1 John. In fact, after this evening, we will only have two more weeks left in this epistle as we have come close to the end of what we are reading in John's first letter to this group of congregations who are suffering and wondering and doubting. This evening, we will look at 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1 down through verse 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. Let's go to him in a word of prayer this evening. Our Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this epistle of 1 John. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that it shows us so many things and ultimately leads us to assurance as it reminds us of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us of the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. We ask, Lord, that your same Spirit would enable us to be illumined to understand your scriptures this evening, to understand the things that he inspired the apostle to write all these thousands of years ago. And we ask that we would see more of Christ in it. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you'll note that it's a rather short passage, just five short verses that we're looking at this evening. And you may wonder, why exactly is that? For one thing, Read verse 6 on your own time and recognize that that's one of the most uh, debated and sometimes misused verses in all of Scripture. But as we see 1 John 5, 1 through 5, we see really that there's this bookend effect that happens. And it begins in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and it ends, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so this idea of believing in Jesus, believing that he is the Son of God, believing that he is the Christ, is really kind of the beginning and the end of this section that John has laid out for us. It really shows us this is a section in his mind that he is trying to fill with certain things, that there's one central theme here, this idea of our faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And we'll see that this evening as we continue to go through it. And of course, we're going to see things this evening that we have seen before. That, in a sense, is what 1 John is again and again as he continually comes through certain things, certain ideas, certain phrases even that he has already said. I think of the Apostle Paul's writings and really what that is is a journey. It's a hike, perhaps. And sometimes Paul goes off into the weeds and you have to come back a little bit, but he always is heading towards somewhere and it's far different, perhaps, than the place where he began. And so you read Paul's epistles and you see those sorts of things. This fly is back, in case you are wondering. I haven't seen him in a year. I'm guessing it's not the same one. But in any case, as we see in 1 John, something is slightly different here than what the Apostle Paul normally does. Instead of going on a long, straight march with certain excursions off to the left and to the right, what John does is he continually brings us back again to see certain things that he has seen before. That there is certain repetition, but it builds on itself, and it adds to itself. So we can think perhaps of 1 John as a spiral staircase. And as you're continually going up these stairs, you're continually passing by a place that you've passed by before, but now as you pass by, you're a little bit higher, and the vantage point is a little bit different. You've seen a little bit more, and perhaps your legs have gotten a little stronger from the things that you've already done. 
That's what John is doing for us here. And he really brings to bear this idea of faith and the new birth and obedience and love once again to bring us assurance. So we'll see three main points, three main headings this evening, each in their own turn. First, as we see in verse 1, faith and new birth. And so notice with me again, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And so this is the beginning of this section that John lays out for us. And we can see right away that the key emphasis here, although we see faith popping up again and again, the primary thing that John wants us to know is that we can know that we have been born of God. And so we can ask at this point, what does it mean to be born of God? We have a number of different things that we say about this, a number of different phrases perhaps. We say sometimes born again or born from above. In addition to born of God, we sometimes use the more technical theological term regeneration of being basically made new of a work of the Holy Spirit that as we hear the gospel proclaimed to us outwardly that inwardly he does a work and makes us new and makes us respond to this and makes us live towards God where previously we were only dead in our sins. That seems to be exactly what John is getting at here. It's a familiar word, a familiar phrase in John's writings as well, we know. In John chapter 3, in the Gospel of John, we see this phrase taking an important point in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And John is bringing it out again for us this evening. And so what exactly is he saying here? What exactly is his point as he brings out the new birth and the confidence this should bring? How does this bring us assurance? Well, he says, and he outlines in different ways, as we'll see throughout these five verses, That really this new birth, this work of God, this work of the Holy Spirit is the source of these other things. It's the source of our faith in Jesus Christ, of our belief that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior. It's the source of our love for God and for each other that ultimately is manifest in our obedience to God's commands. And so what John is reminding us here is that it all begins with the work of God. It all begins with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Because there's a certain logic here that John continually comes to us with. And he says, first, God has acted on you. As a result of that, you believe, and then you love, and then you obey. And oh, by the way, if you love God, the one who has acted upon you, you will love his children. We've seen that in the weeks uh, leading up to this. John says it again for us this evening. If you love God, you will love his children. You will love the others who have experienced this new birth, who have been born of God, who have the same regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in this life. And so what comfort this would have brought to John's original audience? Remember their situation. They were in churches in a group of congregations that had seen people walk out, had seen people go away. Those who had claimed to be professing the same faith, believing in the same Messiah, believing in the same Savior, in the same gospel, and they had gone away from it. And instead, they were now what John refers to as antichrists. They were those who had either set themselves up as a replacement for Christ, or at least were in opposition to him, and they were trying to actively recruit those people in the church who had remained to follow after them. They were evangelizing, in a sense. And so imagine what comfort these sorts of words would bring to those people, the people who had remained, because they might be wondering, why am I still here? Why have I remained? Am I right? Am I on the right track? Have I stayed when I should have gone? Should I have gone with them? How do I know that I will not leave at some point in the future? Well, John is reminding them that this, first and foremost, is a work of God. 
That assurance ultimately comes to us that we can know that we have been born of God and the comfort isn't in our knowing, it's the comfort in the fact that what we know is that we have been born of God. And so John reminds us of this. What comfort this should bring to us as well. We live in a different situation, but we suffer with many of the same problems, don't we? Many of the same temptations. We have many of the same weaknesses. We have certainly seen people walk away from the profession that they made perhaps after decades and decades of professing it. And we can wonder, if we're still here, if we're still gathering Lord's Day in and Lord's Day out, morning and evening, how do we know that this is the right thing? And how can we know that we ourselves will not fall away as well? Can we have any confidence in these sorts of things? Well, John reminds us of the, of the new birth, of being born of God, of regeneration, that this really is the result of divine activity. And that brothers and sisters, is what gives us confidence. I don't think I need to tell you very much that our work, even our best work as believers, is a complete and total mess. That even the best things we can bring to God, even the best works of obedience, even the best trust that we have in our Savior, even the strongest that our faith ever is, is still far from the perfection that God requires of those who are going to be in his presence. And John knows that. In fact, if anyone would know it, it is John, the former son of thunder. He recognizes that his faith is imperfect as well, that the people he's writing to have imperfect faith, that their obedience and their love are not going to be perfect. He's already said again and again that we cannot say that we have no sin. Sometimes people take verses in 1 John out of context and try to argue, no, Christians can be perfect, and there's this sort of perfectionism that John is teaching. The problem with that is if you keep reading. Again, John has us on this spiral staircase, and we're going to keep coming around to these points again and again and again, and he's going to remind us of these things. We know that if we are relying any bit on our own faith and love and obedience, then we are relying on something that cannot sustain us, on something that cannot give us any comfort. And so as we consider these things, regeneration and faith and love and obedience, they're all distinct, but they're connected. But God is calling us to not confuse them to make sure we have the main thing in the main place. These are not things, they're not signs that you are better than anyone else. And if God has been at work in you in your life and he has regenerated you and you are believing in Christ and you are experiencing love for God and for each other and you are obeying his commands as a manifestation of this love that you have been given by the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that you are better off on your own than your neighbor or your friend who does not. Because these things come to those who don't deserve them. And this is ultimately the work of God, first and foremost. These are not signs of our superiority. They're signs that God is at work for us and in us. And we have to keep these things in mind. And this brings us assurance. As John is going to say in the rest of these five verses, again in different ways, and he's going to say through the end of this chapter, through the end of this epistle, as he said since the beginning, you can have assurance if you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that idea of you can have assurance, perhaps, is something that, again, we need to hear again and again. In fact, in some ways, over these last few months, I've been really thankful to be in First John because I need to be reminded of these things. To put it a little bit more violently, I need to be struck upside the head with these things. Again and again and again. I come to you as forgetter-in-chief. And I'm certain that there are other forgetters in this congregation as well, perhaps all of us. 
who in our weakness, in our doubt, in our sin, begin to wonder, begin to doubt, is God really going to do what he has promised to do? Can we truly be sure? Well, John tells us again and again and again that he wants us to know. In this case, he wants us to know that we have been born of God. And we can have assurance if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, if we're trusting in him for our salvation, because this faith is evidence that God, the Spirit, has done a work in our hearts and made us new. And we can have assurance that if we love God and other believers, those around us, those we can see, and those, and he who, in God's case, we cannot see, that we can also take comfort, we can have assurance, because we know that this itself is also a result of the work of God in our lives. And ultimately, as John says, we can have assurance if we keep God's commandments. And perfectly, certainly. We know even in our Heidelberg Catechism, it goes out of its way to make the point that we only have a small beginning of obedience in this life. We are far from where we will be one day in eternity future. But the fact that we sincerely begin to obey and to keep all of God's commandments out of gratitude is another plank for assurance for us. Again, not that you will obey or love or believe perfectly, but this is evidence of God's work in you. And so as we consider what faith is, what faith is evidence of, the fact that it's the evidence of the work of God in us of a prior divine activity, we can take comfort. We can take assurance in this. Our faith, weak as it may be, is in itself not worthy of these things but it's faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith in Jesus Christ has been worked by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And so, brothers and sisters, as we believe, we can take comfort. This is faith and the new birth. But we see our second heading this evening, faith and obedience, as we look at verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And so we see a very logical order here. First comes the new birth, that leads to faith, and faith leads also to obedience and love for God and for others. Now we know, don't we? We have this recognition as we read scripture, as we grow up, grow up in church perhaps, as we're coming into this later in life even, that Christians have certain duties and responsibilities, that there are certain things that we're to do and there's certain things that we are not to do. But what John is reminding us here very clearly is that without faith, there is no true love. Without faith in Jesus Christ, there is no love for God, there is no love for others. Again, it goes back to this setting, this idea in the Heidelberg Catechism of guilt, grace, and gratitude, that great structure of the Christian life. That we were guilty and that we deserved condemnation and eternal wrath. That God was gracious to us and especially we see that in the sending of Jesus Christ to live and die and rise again for us and to enable the Holy Spirit to make us more and more into his image after he has made us new and brought us to true faith in Jesus Christ. And then what does the catechism do? Does it say, well, you have no responsibilities, you have no duties now. There is nothing for you to do because it's all been done for you. No. It reminds us that it has all been done for us, and that is exactly why we have something to do now. That is exactly why we have obedience to bring to our God, because faith leads to true obedience. That understanding of grace leads to gratitude. And this is John's point once again here. We can think perhaps of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 tells us of many different things. It tells us of the law of God in all kinds of different ways. But in chapter, or 
In Psalm 119, verse 16, it tells us that the law of God is a delight to our soul. Now you may be reading that and thinking, well, how can David say that? We know, first of all, what David was. David was a sinner like us. We read in First and Second Samuel of some of the things that David did. And after this great story of David is the king that Israel needs, we see that David is not ultimately the king that Israel needs, because David is sinful and weak, much like the people that he is leading. So we can ask, how can David say this? How can we come to Psalm 119 and say this? In fact, I would encourage you to read Psalm 119 this week. I saw when I said 119, there was a little bit of panic that washed over the congregation. We're not going to read it all tonight. But I encourage you this week to go to Psalm 119, to read it, and to ask, how can these things be? And then look to Jesus. Look to the God who is gracious and merciful. Look to the God who saved David, as wretched as he was. The same God who saves you, as wretched as you are. David is not coming to the law as a way to save himself. He's not coming to the law as a way to maintain his position before God, but he comes to God as someone who is partaking in the sacrifices of Israel, who understands his own sinfulness, who writes psalms like Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, and who understands as a result of these things that this is the true and righteous law of God. That these are the commands, these are the laws, these are the statutes of the one who has been so gracious to me, who has loved me, and who has saved me, even though I deserve the exact opposite. This is how faith leads to obedience. And he says here in First John 5 that these commandments are not burdensome. He says in verse 3, for this is the love of God and that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And so we can ask, how can that be? Because we know, don't we, boys and girls, one of the first things we learn when we're younger is sometimes our parents give us rules and they seem like burdens to us. They keep us from doing the things we want to do. They keep us from doing the things that seem like fun that our friends and our family members perhaps and our siblings are doing. And so we can ask, how can it be that these things are not burdensome? Well, considering what John has already told us, considering what he's already told us even in the verses leading up to this, I think we can see this quite clearly. When I was about... Five or six, as I'm thinking about it, sometime in the mid to late 90s, there was a great storm that came in Omaha, where I lived. In October, when the leaves were still on the trees, and the snow and the ice came down. If you've lived in Arizona all your life, snow and ice is what happens when water gets cold. And the leaves are still on the trees, and they're very heavy at this point when the snow and the ice comes. Then they start to melt, and they get even heavier, and pretty soon, trees started coming down all over the neighborhood. One came down directly against our house. We're thankful it was so close. Otherwise, it would have had more force and might have come through the roof. Now, that tree is no longer doing its job. It's no longer being a tree. But my parents had the great idea that we could make this into a balance beam in the backyard. And so at the bottom of the hill where we lived, there was all these wood chips and different things. And they cut down the tree to an adequate size. And they put it down because it was a very straight tree. And we could use it as a balance beam to walk back and forth and back and forth. And that's what we did for summer after summer after summer. Now, boys and girls, if you're on a log that is four or five inches off the ground, are you going to be terrified of falling off that log? No. I fell off it numerous times. Sometimes I got hurt. I have a tendency, I've learned to lead with my head, which can lead to all kinds of problems. 
But even the pain that I experienced there, even the hurts that, I ca- that came from falling off that log, from falling off that balance beam, was not life and death. Now imagine, boys and girls, that we suspend that log 100 feet in the air and tell you to walk across it. Suddenly that's a different thing, isn't it? Suddenly there is fear. Suddenly there is trembling when you come to it. And you realize that the consequences of breaking this law are truly life and death. I think that's what John's getting at here. He has already reminded us that we are not keeping this law perfectly, that we are sinners. And if we say we have no sin, we are all automatically liars and we make God himself into a liar. That we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is a propitiation for our sins, who turns away the wrath of God from our sins, and therefore his commandments are not burdensome, because suddenly this balance beam that we have to walk, even though we often fall off it, even though it can be painful to fall off of it, it's not life and death now. Because we are not obeying this for our salvation. We are not obeying this to keep our standing before God, but we are obeying this because of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that takes the burden out of the law itself. And so remember, as you hear God's law read to you, as you consider these things, as you read it on your own, as you have your conscience coming up within you and reminding you of what is right and what is wrong, that God's commands are not burdensome to the Christian. Because we are not doing what we're tempted to do. We are not taking this and making it into a way of salvation for ourselves. The law is not a way of salvation for us. It is a way of gratitude. So what would make these commandments burdensome? Well, trying to keep them in order to be righteous in God's sight. To recognize that this is what we have to do in order to be declared righteous in his sight, to pass the judgment on the last day, to keep our standing before him, and we know that we're going to fail again and again and again, and that God requires perfect righteousness in order to be in his sight if we are to keep the law for our salvation. So God is calling us through the Apostle John to remember what the law is for the Christian. It is not a way for us to gain or to keep our standing It is a way for us to respond in gratitude to the one who has given us our standing in the first place. To the one who has worked, to the one who has given us his spirit, to the one who has justified us, declared us righteous in his sight, who has adopted us as his firstborn children and given us the rights and the privileges of that sonship, the inheritance that we did not deserve, who has regenerated us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so perhaps what God is asking you to do is to ask yourself, are these commandments burdensome to me? And if the answer is yes, perhaps you need to ask why. Am I seeing myself for who I truly am and the sinner that I truly am? Am I seeing God for the gracious God that he truly is? Am I seeing Christ as the Savior who has completely saved me in the way that he completely has? Am I responding in gratitude to the one who has shown me so much grace? As Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so these commandments are not burdensome to us. And this obedience is ultimately how John defines love here, as he says there for us in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So you may wonder at this point, John has said commands here and there throughout this letter, throughout this epistle. There are really ten that he gives to us, and often it's two things. It's believe, and perhaps even more commonly, love. And you might wonder, why is John continually commanding us to love? Why doesn't he command us to do other things? 
Well, I think we can safely say that in that command to love, we have the commands to do all the other things. Because love is what summarizes the law. We read in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And this was not a new thing either. This has been that way since the beginning. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 11, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And so sometimes people may try to come to you and say, Well, we aren't those obedient Christians. We aren't the law-keeping Christians. We're the loving Christians. I'm here to tell you as your pastor that that makes absolutely no theological sense. That is like saying we are not the living Christians, we're the alive Christians. You're saying the same thing in just slightly different ways. That love is a fulfillment of the law. That love is not opposed to the law. That if we love God, we will keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And so we can obey and we can show love to our God and our Savior and to each other. And really, that's the order. Because isn't it true, don't we know in our own experience, that if we think little of God, then we think little of his image bearers as a result. And we see this in our culture, don't we? If suddenly God is not seen as the great one, as the all-powerful one, as the gracious one, as the one revealed to us in Scripture and in creation, then suddenly those who are bearing his image aren't as important either. The lack of love for God leads to a lack of love for other people. We read in Heidelberg, question 91, but what are good works? And the answer is only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for his glory, and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. So we have their true faith. These things are done out of true faith. They conform to God's law. They are obedience, and they're done for his glory. There is that sense of love for God that is leading us to do these things. That's what John is telling us here. That again, this is the result of God's love for us. That our love for him, our love for each other, is a result of what he began in our lives. Of what he did in Jesus Christ. Of what he planned from eternity past. As the great reformer John Calvin said, the love of God is no idle thing. John has been taking chapters to show us that. That God's love is effective. God's love is productive. It produces certain things in those who experience it. In this case, he's reminding us that it produces obedience and love for himself and for each other. So this is faith and obedience. And finally, what does this lead to? We see it's faith and victory, our final point this evening, in starting in verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And certainly we can see here that to overcome something, there has to be a conflict there, that there is conflict with the world. I don't know if you're like my family and your family and you have a group of competitors. It can be sometimes entertaining and sometimes, well, not so great. I remember as a kid, we got the new game, new to us, Jenga, and we put it on the dining room table and we played it once. And we were butting heads so much it was unbelievable. The stress and the competitiveness that really came out with us. We were in a conflict suddenly, an intra-family conflict. 
and winning became the most important thing. But we see here that there's conflict with the world, and the most important victory that we can see is overcoming the world, as John is saying this. And these people he's writing to originally would know this. They know there's conflict with the world. They've seen it in their own ranks as these people have left, as these people have denied Jesus Christ, the Lord who they previously professed, as they have come and tried to bring people along with them. They knew that there was a conflict here. Perhaps we can ask the question at this point, do we? Are we recognizing this conflict that we have? Not a conflict of physical weapons, as in a war, as we think of it, but a conflict between those who believe and obey and love and those who try to sell us things other than this. If we're in this conflict with the world, if we, as we heard, even as we considered the Lord's Prayer in the Heidelberg Catechism, if we are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil, how can we have confidence? Well, John reminds us that faith overcomes, that faith gives the victory. He asks, who is it that overcomes the world? And perhaps we would have ourselves many different answers to that question. Well, the one who is strong, the one who is good, the one who is great, The one who pulls himself up by his own bootstraps, that seems to be the quintessential American answer. But John's answer is different. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And that's a struggle for us, isn't it? It just seems that faith, especially our faith as we experience it, is just so weak and ordinary. How can this be how we overcome the world? Well, very simply, faith is not of the world. And what is of the world cannot give victory over the world. As much as we're tempted to look to worldly things to give us victory, they cannot. There's only faith that gives us the victory. And it's not in verse 4 that some who believe overcome, but that everyone who believes overcomes. Think of this in John's context. Think of this in our context. We're not left wondering, is God going to be there at the gates of heaven on the last day of the judgment saying, well, this one can get in because he believed, but this one believed and she cannot get in. That those who trust in Christ are welcomed in. Those who trust in Christ have been given this victory. Brothers and sisters, God is calling you to believe this. Even when life gets tough, even when the world is hard. And it's not just faith itself that overcomes, but faith in Christ. Faith in the only object that is capable of bearing such a heavy load, and that is Christ himself. Christ overcame the world. Ultimately, it is his victory. A victory that he won by hard labor. And by trusting in him, we overcome too. And so his victory becomes ours. And so are you wondering and doubting, Christian? Are you wondering if you can have assurance and how? Well, look to Christ. Believe in him. And work from him. Knowing that it is ultimately the work of God that leads to these things in us. That we have been born of God and so we believe. That we have been born of God and we believe and so we love. We have been born of God and we believe and love and so we obey. And this is what gives us assurance. As with many things, there is a ditch on either side of the road here. We can fall off on the one edge in saying that God's commands are not to be kept at all. And we can fall off on the other edge and say that for Christians, God's commands are meant to be kept in a burdensome way. John is saying no. 
that we love God because we believe in Christ, because we have been born of him, that we love our neighbors, we love those who are members of the household of faith. That this love is evidence, uh, it evidences itself, it manifests itself in obedience to God's commands, and his commands are not burdensome because we know that we have Christ, and with him we have all things. And so don't confuse our work with God's work. If you find that God's commands are burdensome, ask yourself why. And ultimately remember that our assurance comes from the work of God in our lives. And God is calling you to believe in Christ, to love him and to love others, to obey his commandments, and to recognize that you can truly have assurance, that you can know that you have been born of God. As imperfect as your responses are, they are evidence of the perfect one at work in you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for this epistle of 1 John and for the assurance and the confidence it brings to us. We thank you, Lord, that we are not left hanging on assurance that is ours alone from the things that we do, but that ultimately even the things we see in our own lives are the product of your grace and your power at work within us. We ask, Lord, that you would enable us more and more throughout this week to be be having these things brought to our minds that the Spirit would continually strengthen the faith that he has created in our hearts by the means of the proclamation of the word. And may he also create it in hearts where it does not yet exist. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.